Well, even as we think about the Lord doing great work in the lives of our youth and through our youth into the lives of others, it, it reminds us of the fact that the Christian life is a life. It is something that must be lived. It can't just simply be in our heads. It can't simply be words that fall out of our mouths, though indeed it will touch both of those spheres of reality. It must encompass the entirety of who we are. Jude is actually going to address that this morning as we look together at Jude, verses 5 through 16. You have printed before you in your bulletin Jude 1 through 16, but this morning I'm just going to read for us verses 5 through 16. So let's give attention to the reading of God's Word. Now I want to remind you that all you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal life. Yet in like manner these people also, relying on their dreams, defile the flesh, reject the authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. These people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them! For they walked in the way of Cain, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error, and perished in Korah's rebellion. These are the blemishes on your love feasts, as they feast with you without fear, looking after themselves, waterless clouds, swept along by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of His holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way. And of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against Him, these are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loudmouth, boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your word. And now as we submit ourselves to it, we ask that you would, through the power of the Holy Spirit, come and bring clarity to what is a challenging passage. Come and show us what it is that you would have us to know that we might indeed walk as faithful followers of the Lord Jesus. Present him now before us by faith. We ask it in his name. Amen. We have a group of friends who each week we pray for each other as we're preparing messages. 
and sermons. And this week I was in contact with several of them, jokingly going, (laughs) you think you have a hard passage this week? I have a hard passage this week. Probably one of the most challenging passages in all of the New Testament, Jude 5 through 16. And you can see why it's one of the most challenging passages. I just read those verses and I don't, don't proclaim to be a prophet or a son of a prophet, but what was going through your mind is, what is he talking about? What is going on in this passage? What is he trying to describe? Well, we'll get to that, at least parts of it in our time together this morning. But I want to remind us of a couple of things as we begin, especially for those who may be new among us, just so you can ask the question and answer the question, why in the world would we spend time on a text like this? And I want you to know the beliefs here at Cornerstone and the importance of why we think every single passage of Scripture is essential for the training of the man of God to be complete for every good work. You see, I just quoted from 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, which says all Scripture is inspired by God. All Scripture, not some, not the portions that make us feel good, not the portions that are easy to understand. All Scripture is inspired by God. And notice, it is profitable, Paul writes. There is profit that he intends, that God intends, in Jude 5 through 16 for you. And he planned from before the foundation of the world that on this particular Sunday, at this moment, we'd be in this passage and he has something very particular that he wants to accomplish in the life of his saints today. We believe that by faith as we look at the Word of God. All Scripture is profitable for teaching, positive, positive instruction, for reproof, for correction, negative instruction, and for training in righteousness so that we would continue in our walk. Why? That the man of God might be complete. Equipped for every good work. Not some works, not most works, but every good work. Have you ever wanted to be equipped for every good work that God has ever called you to? Yes is your answer to that. (laughs) Yes is your answer to that. And your yes in say, how can I be equipped for every good work? Submit yourself to all of Scripture. Submit yourself to all of Scripture. Isn't it a temptation for us to be cherry-picking our favorite passages And God, I just love this. It's going to make me feel good. I need a little inspiration today. And what that is in some ways is fashioning, in some ways, a God of our own likeness by simply selectively choosing passages that particularly speak to us. Rather than receiving, as the Apostle Paul said in Acts chapter 20, as he was was sharing with the elders at Ephesus, as he was leaving them in Acts chapter 20, he said, and I want this to be the testimony of my testimony to you as the body of Christ and our testimony as a body of Christ to the world, that never did we shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I want that to be our testimony. I didn't shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Of God. Now, in order to do that, that means we have to work through books of the Bible and sometimes come across passages like Jude 5 through 16. And I believe that God, by His grace, has great profit for us to glean from this particular text. Now, I'm going to do my best to say what needs to be said in the midst of this text, draw out the points of application that I think are very particular and actually quite clear in the writing of Jude, and I'm going to note some of what we might call the theological and interpretive sticky wickets. Yes, that's the technical term for it. 
in the study of this particular section of Jude. I'm not going to bed down every one of your curiosities. Just FYI, on the front end, that's my caveat. You will leave here with questions. I will leave here with questions from the text of Jude 5 through 16. But we will, together by God's grace through His Spirit, have a confirmation of His purposes and the clarity with regards to the points that He wants us to glean from this indeed complex passage of Scripture. Well, I want to look at this passage in just two ways with you this morning. I want to look at the way that leads to judgment in the first place. Throughout the scope of this entire section, verses 5 through 16, the way that leads to judgment. And then I want to excerpt verse 9, which is the only positive example that Jude gives in the entirety of this section surrounding the archangel Michael, one of the most complex sections in this book. But I want to take that one verse and I want to describe for you what I believe that Jude is showing to us as the way that leads to life. So we're going to look at the way that leads to judgment and we're going to look at the way that leads to life. Let's look first at the way that leads to judgment. Right at the beginning here in verses 5 to 7, what we find Jude, brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus, coming here to declare to Jewish Christians that he sees an infiltration of false teaching within the body there in whom he is speaking to, that he sees a drift that's taking place theologically and in terms of behavior, in terms of the practice of the Christian life, he says, I want, to see, I want you to see the three dangers that are in the midst of the false teaching that you're experiencing there. And the first danger is unbelief. The first danger is unbelief, or what we may call the danger of rejecting God's promises. He says it there in verse 5. I want to remind you that although you once fully knew it, that Jesus who saved the people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. Boy, that's strong language, isn't it? He's referring to the Exodus where Moses, that great leader of the people of Israel, led them out of Egypt across the Red Sea on dry land and led them into the wilderness up to the cusp of the Jordan River looking into the land of Canaan. And you'll remember at that particular point, as they looked into the land of Canaan, they sent in 12 spies We read about it in Numbers 14. Those 12 spies go into the land and they come back with just the very promises and reports that God had said about this land. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. The grapes are as big as watermelons. Everything is absolutely amazing. There's only one problem. The people are huge. They are giants and there's no way that we can take them. At least that was the report of 10 of the spies. Two of the spies, as you remember, Joshua and Caleb, were saying, yes, the people are huge, yes, the land's amazing, but God has promised to give us the land, we can take it. But remember, they decided not to follow the advice of Joshua and Caleb and sided with the majority of the ten spies. And in the preceding chapter, we find out from God that they fall under judgment because of their unbelief and an entire generation of Israelites are wiped out. That's what Jude's alluding to here in chapter 5. He's saying there is a belief that starts off well but doesn't finish strong. The question that he's actually arising in this text is not whether you've had a past conversion experience or signed a card or walked an aisle. What he's actually pressing into you is to say, do you believe in the faith once delivered to the saints today, right now? Is that faith persistently living or is it just in the afterglow of some past experience or maybe it looks simply to the fuzziness of a future hope and expectation 
He goes, but those actually can slip into unbelief if we are not tending the heart in persistent faith. It's a danger that leads down the path of judgment. Almost none of us wake up in the morning going, today will be the day that I disavow Christ. Today will be the day that I will do that. I see it. I've marked it on the calendar. It's going to happen that day. What happens as we read through the book of Hebrews, as we read through the warnings of the Apostle Paul in his, in his epistles, is that we slowly drift away from the faith. We're not anchored in the truth. And he says this is a way that leads to judgment. We become a people of unbelief who reject God's promises. But secondly, he says, verse 6, that another step in the path that leads to judgment is pride. We might call this the danger of rejecting God's boundaries. Now, verse 6 in the book of Jude is one of the most difficult verses in the entirety of the book, entirety of the New Testament. Read it with me. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. I have not read every single scholar on this particular verse, but it felt like it this week and in previous weeks as to what exactly is being referred to here in verse 6. Now, I could go for quite some time talking to you about various opinions as to what it is he's alluding to here in verse 6. But what I want to give you is just two plausible views as to what it is that Jude is referring to, and then I want to get really quickly to the, to the point that Jude is trying to make. Many scholars believe that Jude is describing the event of Genesis chapter 6. Genesis chapter 6, which is that very mysterious and shadowy passage that describes the sons of God coming to earth and having sexual relations with women and producing what is called the Nephilim or the evil race who then become giants in the land that leads to the wickedness that becomes pervasive over the earth and ultimately the judgment of God in Genesis 9, the flood. That's one view. That the angels... The sons of God of Genesis 6 are not men. They're angels who inhabit flesh of men and who then cohabitate with women who create a race of intense debauchery and evil that covers the whole earth so bad that God must entirely destroy with his flood. That's one view. All right, buckle up. View two. It could be describing Jude here, the fall of Satan. A more popular view that Lucifer, the great angel, the right hand of God himself in the heavenly places, the one who had the highest rank among the angels, who we are told in Isaiah chapter 14 and also in Ezekiel chapter 28, led a rebellion with a group of other angels to try to overthrow God and occupy the throne of heaven. And in that, fell to earth, and that's where we get the unfolding of Genesis chapter 3, the serpent who comes in with the temptation of Eve. Now, regardless of the view that you take or the many other views that are even presented out there for Jude, here's the point that Jude is actually making. Part of the step on the pathway to judgment is when we become people who refuse to stay within the positions of our authority and habitation and grasp for more power or more pleasure than is intended for us. That's the point that he's making. Notice the focus of the text. Who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling place. Isn't this our tendency? 
Our tendency is to say, if we're hearing a false teaching and we're drifting towards unbelief, the unbelief that we will typically drift towards is one that will be looser in morals. It's one that's looser in morals. That's often the case. One that will give us a little bit more leadway. And don't we often become a people who want to grasp for positions of power outside of the context in which God has called us or to act in ways that our fleshly desires are driven towards, even though God has boundaried those with regards to his commands. So regardless of whatever view you take, it's quite clear that he's describing a path on the way to judgment, that it wants to break off the shackles of the position that God has actually put one in and try to reach beyond to what God has said is not yours. And notice the cost. He has kept them in eternal chains of gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Seems to indicate a provisional um, restriction of torment that God has placed these angels in, these sons of God, however we understand that language, awaiting the day in which they will be cast eternally into the lake of fire. They are provisionally restricted. So this is significant as we begin to think, why is this important to us? The false teaching that Jude is actually addressing to the Jewish Christians of his day had to do with a a seduction, a sensuality, a movement towards sexual immorality, and it also had to do with unbelief as a part of the means by which we slide into judgment. Now he makes even more hay of this in the very next verse because he moves from unbelief to pride to perversion. The danger of rejecting God's designs. Now this could have been written today in terms of the need for this kind of instruction. Unpopular as it is, Jude is incredibly clear. Clear in the way that the Bible is from cover to cover about sexual immorality and specifically homosexuality. Look at how he describes it here in verse 7. He says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued a natural desire serve as an example by undergoing punishment of eternal fire. The language of sexual immorality here in the text is the Greek word porneia, which many of you actually know. It's the English word from which we get the English word pornography. It's a general descriptive term that's describing fornication generally of any sexual kind. He's saying this kind of teaching, this kind of unbelief, this kind of holding on to a lie leads into a grasping for power, a position of pride that ultimately begins to contort God's design under perversion. There's a drift that leads into the way of judgment. And he says, but this general sexual immorality is not just the only evidence of what was taking place in Sodom and Gomorrah and what I'm fearful of as I speak to you Jewish Christians, but I want you to see that there was an unnatural desire. Notice how he says that they pursued an unnatural Desire, a sarcos heteros in the Greek, another flesh or a strange flesh. It's the language that's used for homosexuality. Now, he's, it's quite clear that if he's referencing Sodom and Gomorrah, that's exactly what it is that he's speaking of. Because if you go to Genesis chapter 19, you remember the story. Two angels who show up in the form of men come and stay at Lot's house. Word gets around in the town, a gathering of men gather around the house and demand that these two visitors come out that they might have sexual relations with them. That was what was happening in Genesis chapter 19. 
That was the perversion that was happening in Sodom and Gomorrah. And it's quite clear that that's what is being referenced here by Jude. And he's saying, this is not the direction of which the Lord has allowed us or freed us to go. Now, as Jude says that, he is only asserting what the Bible has asserts from cover to cover. And that is that the sexual relationship is for one man and one woman in the covenant of marriage. The Bible is clear that any sexual activity outside of the confines of covenant marriage is sin. Heterosexual activity or homosexual activity that is aberrant outside of those confines is egregious sin against Almighty God. Now Jude here is not saying that sexual sin is the worst sin that anyone can ever get in. In fact, I would like to propose today that in this room, there is not a one of us who is not a sexual sinner. It's not a one of us. So this is, room is not filled with those who are sexually clean and those who are sexually not clean. We all, we all have fallenness in thought, word, and deed. We all struggle in a variety of ways with regards to the lust of the flesh. This is not to separate one group into another. It's to acknowledge that this is a universal problem with the brokenness of our flesh. We believe in the doctrine known as total depravity. A doctrine that actually says that every single part of us, our mind, our will, and our emotions, and yes, our physical bodies, are prone towards wickedness. And if we're honest with ourselves today, do you want people to know your thought life? Of course you do not. And I don't want you to know mine. I'm grateful that God does, that I can come to him just as Nathaniel led us in confession of sin today, not in fear, but in acknowledging that he is the all-seeing eye. And yet he loves me still. And yes, he's paid the ultimate price for my sin. And it goads me and encourages me and, and I persevere in the faith knowing that by his love I can bring the sins, even the sexual sins of my life before him and have him forgive them. There's a wonderful thing. But Jude here is acknowledging as well that sexual sin, though not necessarily, he's not describing it as the worst possible sin ever, it is a significant evidence of the judgment of God upon a society and upon a culture. Danny Aiken of Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary notes this. He says, sexual sin, especially homosexual sin, is one of the clearest evidences of a society that has rejected God's truth and has been given over to judgment. Now, the reason Danny Aiken can say that is because he knows his Bible. He knows Romans chapter 1. Romans 1.24 and Romans 1.28 make it quite clear that as we go against the will of God and his commands and parameters, and as we fight against the things that we know to be wrong but continue to do them and live under the shame and the guilt of it, there comes a time where God hands us over to the desires of our flesh. That's the language of Paul in Romans 1. Meaning, you want these things? I give them to you. He hands us over. C.S. Lewis describes that as every person who goes ultimately to eternal judgment is one who has chosen to go there one step at a time. That handing over is the releasing of God's providential restraint and care. Isn't it a wonderful thing that God holds us back from the things that we would become if we were left to our own devices? But for the grace of God, go I. There should be a sense of incredible humility and incredible dependence and pleading for the grace of God that we would not lose our minds 
and go do something utterly foolish. That we know if we are honest with ourselves, the seeds of those known sins are in our hearts and we are capable of committing them, put in the right context and the release of God's hand. In fact, if we are so sure that we rise above these sins, we better be careful lest we fall. That's an evidence of pride. If you're sitting in here thinking at any level, oh, I don't struggle with homosexuality. I don't struggle with these issues. Those are for those people out there, then you haven't begun to understand the darkness of your heart because that statement in and of itself is a statement of pride. It's an us-them that you've created as if the sins of your heart are in some way not as significant as the sins of someone else. No, there should be a sense of grace and understanding and acknowledgement that we are all broken and maybe broken in different ways. But we are all broken. And we're experiencing levels and dimensions of that brokenness. But if we give in to it, if we don't fight it, if we don't bring it to the Lord repentantly, then judgment may ensue. It's what he refers to here as the eternal fire of punishment. That's the language that he uses in verse 7. He's saying Sodom and Gomorrah are a mini picture of what's going to happen to those who live this kind of lifestyle at the end of time. I'll let that settle on you. That's a warning. That's a warning. Now, you may hear that and think, well, I don't know about this thing called hell. Jude lovingly wants to persuade you, if you doubt this place called hell, he wants to lovingly persuade you of its presence and its reality. I say loving because the warnings of Scripture are God's love towards us that we would stay away from the precipice of destruction. That's loving, isn't it? It's loving to be warned when destruction's on the other side of the choices that we would make. And Judas simply echoing what the Bible says about hell from cover to cover. Do you know what the Bible says about hell? First of all, that it's real. That it's real. It's a real place. Jesus, more than anyone else, speaks about hell. It's a terrible place. It's a place of pain and suffering, a place that is described where the worm never dies and where the fire is never quenched. It's a real place. It's a terrible place. And as you can hear in the hints of what I just said, it's a place where we live eternally separated from the love of God, abiding under His wrath. We need to pause here and and simply listen to Jesus' words. There are words from Jesus that we love to quote, aren't there? I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. I'm about to read words we don't quote from Jesus. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes and to be thrown into hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. I'm just guessing you don't have that cross stitched. I'm just guessing. 
Those are heavy words, friends. Those are heavy, those are heavy words. The warnings that are coming here from Jude about a life of unbelief, a life of pride grasps for position and leads towards perversion is a life that's on the path to judgment. He says, continuing in verse 8, yet in like manner these people, who is he speaking of there? We're speaking of the false teachers. In like manner, so in all the ways that I've just described those stories, Sodom and Gomorrah, the angels falling, the unbelief of Israel, in like manner, those are the false teachers before you. And notice how they live. They live relying on their dreams. What are we to rely on? The revealed word of God. They rely on their dreams. And their dreams here can be speculative in terms of vision. That literal dreams, it can mean thoughts, imaginings, instincts, intuitions. How many times are we tending to go with our gut rather than go with the word? That's what this is calling out. They're relying on that. They're not, as we described last week, people who take the sword of the Spirit and test it against their own thoughts and against the thoughts and advances of the world. They rely upon their dreams. Secondly, there are people who defile the flesh. We've already talked about this. Of people who are living by the fleshly appetites. But then notice thirdly, they reject authority and blaspheme the glorious ones. I want you to see the three things he said here. They will not stay in their habitation or authority. They blaspheme authorities. They defile the flesh. They're like Sodom and Gomorrah. And they go with their dreams rather than the revelation. They live in unbelief. He's just saying the same thing in a completely different way. And he's saying the false teaching that you're under is leading you down a path whose end is judgment. And notice verse 10. He says this is actually the way animals live. As if he's not offended us enough yet. He says instinctively that's how animals live. They live by the lust of the flesh. They're hungry. They go kill something. They live by instincts, not in terms of rational thought with regards to revelation. He says, the more we live according to these pathways that lead on the way to judgment, the more beastly we become in our beliefs and in our behaviors. Now listen, friends, I, you know I don't talk a lot about culture that's out there because I think the culture that's out there is as much in here. And we struggle with the very same things. But just being on Twitter just a little bit yesterday... In a very short thread, I found a, the, the, the old video being referenced in Planned Parenthood and the dismemberment of children in the womb. I found a celebration of same-sex marriage. I saw um, very clear the, the killing of police officers and law enforcement. I, I read of the beheading, the young boy overseas who's a Christian. Now, let me just think. Defilements of the flesh, unbelief, violence, debauchery. These are the manifestations. These are the manifestations of what Jude is talking about here in this text. It's just there. We don't have to, don't have to go looking for it. It's just right there. And we just need to be alive and aware to the way the wind is blowing in the culture and the context in which we've been placed. That's not to be fearful. It's not to be fearful. That's to call us into faith. But it is to say, as Jude is trying to do to this body of Christ here, as he gives warnings, he's saying, wake up, friends. That's what he's saying. You're on a path that leads to Sodom and Gomorrah, to destruction. 
That's what he's saying. And he says, it reminds me a lot of Cain in the next verse. The one who killed his brother and came up with his own man-made religion. It reminds me a lot of Balaam, who was the hired prophet out of Israel, hired by Moab to speak against Israel that led to Israel's destruction. It reminds me a lot of Korah, who sought a rebellion against Moses and Aaron to try to overthrow God's authorities. When I look at the false teaching and I see the stories of the Old Testament and I see how it goes with regards to people who unbelieve, who strive in pride and live perverse lives, here's their end. And I'm warning you, church, Jewish Christians, don't dabble in this. Don't play with this. They are, verse 12, your hidden reefs or your blemishes. I think the language is better hidden reefs. Because the picture he's trying to give here is of a ship that's, that's in calm waters. Everything's going well, right? He's laughing, having a great time. And it's like that cruise liner from 2012. It runs upon a hidden coral. And the rocks break into the ship, and before you know it, everyone has died. He says, that's what they are. As you're coming to the Lord's Supper, as you're enjoying fellowship meals together, there they are. In your midst, hidden reefs. And then he piles up a whole list of metaphors. Look at what he says. They're really shepherds feeding themselves. They should be feeding the sheep, but they're glutting themselves. They're really waterless clouds. They look like a full of rain. There's no water in them. They're just pushed away by the wind. They're fruitless trees in late autumn. This is the time where they ought to be bearing fruit, and they have no fruit. They're twice dead, seemingly indicated. There's no fruit, but there's also no root. And they need to be uprooted. They're wild waves, he says, casting upon the foam of their own shame. In other words, they make a lot of noise. There's a lot to do. It's a big deal. And all of it just ends in shame. They're wandering stars. Love this imagery. They're wandering stars. They're stars, in other words, who have lost their constellation. They used to have a pattern that was ordered according to God, and now they're just off on their own course. And notice where they're going to go. They're going to go into the gloom of utter darkness that has been reserved for them forever. These are sobering words. The language he uses in verse 14 and 15 is that they are ungodly. They're ungodly, and there is reserved for them the judgment. And then he does something unusual. And we'll finish up our time right here. I mean, he actually did an unusual, well, he's done a lot of unusual things in this particular text. But there's two particularly unusual things in this text. One here in verse 9, the other in verse 6. He quotes Enoch. He quotes Enoch here. Get verse 9, but, or verse, um, yeah, let's see, verse, um, oh, help me. 14, bless you. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord came with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against them. Now, notice here in this verse 14, he's quoting Enoch. Now, you will look in vain to find that quote anywhere in the Bible. It's not, in, it's not in the Bible. Jude here is not quoting from the Bible, but he is speaking about someone in the Bible, Enoch. As you remember that glorious story of, of Enoch and who Enoch is, he actually shows up in the, in the chapter of the Hall of Faith, remember in the book of Hebrews. 
He's in Genesis chapter 5, and we're told that he walked before the Lord and was faithful, and that then the Lord just took him. It's an indication that he didn't die, that the Lord just took him up to heaven. And, and we're like, oh, it's hard to believe. Well, we wouldn't believe it if Hebrews 11 didn't say that indeed he did not see death and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. It's a wonderful, wonderful verse, a wonderful, amazing story. But this particular quote from Enoch is nowhere to be found in the Bible. In fact, it's found in a book called First Enoch. It's a book that's outside of the canonical writings that Jude here is pulling in to prove a point with regards to judgment. Now, the reason I noted is he's already done this. He did this in verse 9. Verse 9, where the story about Michael the archangel. Look at verse 9. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, in both of these cases... These stories are not found in the Bible. In the Enoch quotes in 1st Enoch, the Michael the archangel story is found in a book called The Assumption of Moses, also outside of the canonical writings. Now the teachings of Jude based upon these two things are purely biblical, and his applications are absolutely biblical, but his quotes are not from the Bible. What are we to make of this? What do we make of the fact that in two places, Jude goes outside of the Bible to make a biblical point? Well, I want to note just three quick things as we close. This kind of thing happens pretty frequently in the Bible, just for information's sake. Paul, for instance, quotes Meander's comedy in 1 Corinthians 15.33 when he says that very famous line that most of you know, evil companions corrupt morals. We tell our teenagers that all the time, don't we? When we head out, evil companions corrupt morals. And it's actually from the literature of the day rather than directly from the Bible. Paul does it also in Titus chapter 1 when he gives this glowing commendation of the Cretans. Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, and lazy gluttons. Now, Paul, when he's saying that, is actually quoting one of the philosophers. He does it most famously in Acts 17 at Mars Hill when quoting one of their poets looking at the, the statue to the unknown God, the idol that was before him. Underneath the idol, the sighting was, in him we live, move, and have our being. And Paul took that very phrase and he used it to apply it to God himself. So this happens with regularity in the scriptures. What are we to do about it? Well, we should know this, that God is the author of Scripture, and God is the author of Scripture, uses multiple different ways to move his servant writers in various methods to write the infallible Word of God. We see this with Moses, for instance. He takes him up on a mountain and speaks to him directly the Ten Commandments. In Isaiah, he gives him a vision of the throne room, and he writes it down. But if you look at the beginning of Luke, how does Luke write his gospel? Well, he goes around and finds oral reports. He interviews people. He gets information from folks. He's researching. Inspired, yes, by the Holy Spirit. Is it the Word of God? You better believe it. But is it one particular method in which it's received? No. God, the author, guides his servant authors in various ways in pulling together what becomes the Word of God. And when the biblical authors do this and quote non-biblical authors, here's what they're always doing. They're always connecting a truth that's generally already known in the world 
with the truth that they need to know that's in the Bible. It's a truth that's generally already known in the world with a truth that they really need to know that's in the Bible. Let me take the Cretan example from Titus chapter 1. As Paul is writing here this book of Titus and he's going to serve on the island of Crete, he says, listen, you guys already know this about the Cretans. You say this about yourselves. You're evil beasts and lazy gluttons and evil people. And then he says, it's actually worse than that. The Bible says that you're sinners and you're headed to judgment without the redemption of God. He connects, he corresponds what they already believe generally to what it is they should really believe. It's the same thing he does in Acts 17. Here's what you already say with the statute of the unknown God, but here, let me tell you who that unknown God is that you need to know. He connects the corresponding truth by building the context into what they already know, bridging into the truth that they need to know. It's not surprising because we find that there is truth outside of the Bible. And no, that's not a problem to say anything like that. Calvin made it very clear there are two books of Revelation. There's the Revelation of creation and there's the Revelation of special revelation, the Bible. For instance, there's all kinds of things about history and mathematics and science that you won't find in the Bible. But we should bring those truths in relationship to the Bible. And we should allow the Bible to govern all of the other truths that we find and glean from the world. Now, last week, I actually quoted an article from Time Magazine. Some of you will remember this. It was an article about gratitude and how that helps brain function and a number of things. Now, when I did that, I was using non-canonical literature. Time Magazine is non-canonical literature. All right? Now, when I connected that particular article to the Bible, you did not draw the conclusion, Nate must think everything in Time Magazine is absolutely inspired by God. And neither should we draw the conclusion that first Enoch or the assumption of Moses is canonical literature simply because one piece of it was used by God to be pulled into the inspiration of the Word of God. Instead, we should acknowledge that what God is doing is superintending the Word of God, plundering the Egyptians, utilizing the truth that is all His anyway, and bringing it into holy writ so that we would be blessed and that it would be repurposed for showing us the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look at this text together in all of its complexities, I want you to see in conclusion that this pathway to judgment is it's an easy one to get on and it's slippery. And the warnings that are coming forth here from Jude is that we must be a people who get on the pathway that leads to light. And that's why he uses verse 9 in the example of Michael the archangel. Michael the archangel, different from the angels who sought to overthrow God in heaven, Michael the archangel stayed within his creaturely limits. And he humbled himself before Almighty God. Now that's pretty remarkable when you consider that Michael is the archangel, the highest ranking chief angel that there is. And he didn't come in his own power. Look at how he came in verse 9. But when the archangel Michael contended with the devil, was disputing over the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. In other words, Michael didn't presume to step out and proclaim his own judgment on the evil one. He knew that he didn't have the power or the authority to do that. But instead, what did he do? He said, the Lord 
rebuke you. Whose power did he rest in? The Lord's power. Michael, the highest archangel, contending with the devil over the body of Moses, whatever that means. And it could mean a lot of things. But contending over the body of Moses, he does not rebuke the devil in his own words or his own power. He rebukes the devil on the standard of God's power and with God's words. You know, that's a quote from Zechariah 3.2. The Lord rebuke you. And that means that Michael the archangel is doing exactly what Jesus is going to do in the Gospels when he is tempted in the wilderness by the evil one, that Jesus himself relies upon the authority of the word of God and on the power of his father to fight back the evil one. And that's the point that's being made here. He contended, he fought for the faith, not on his own power, not with his own words, not in his own way. He submitted it entirely to the Lord. He contended skillfully and he did it with God's word and he rested entirely upon God's authority. Now, I'd like to suggest to you that this, these 5 to 16 verses here in Jude teach us really two significant truths. They teach us the rejection of God leads to the judgment of God. But they also teach us that repentance of sin leads to the redemption of God. And the reason I say that is I was reading this week in the book of Corinth, a book that always encourages me whenever I'm discouraged. Because the church at Corinth is a mess. And when you read the, about the church at Corinth, there's all kinds of, all of the things that actually we've been talking about in Jude you find in Corinth. And here's what the Apostle Paul says about the church at Corinth. He says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor, adul nor adulterers, nor homosexuals, nor sodomites, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor extortioners will inherit the kingdom of God. And friends, that's what we've just said. That a rejection of God leads to the judgment of God. And then he doesn't stop there. This is what he says. And such were some of you. That's what he says. I think probably maybe the most blessed verse in the entirety of the book of Corinthians, and such were some of you. You were the very people that we've been describing, but you're not those people anymore. It's in the past tense. You were those people, and look at what he says, but you are sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of God. Now here's what is so encouraging, and here's what you need to hear. I don't know every story in this room. I don't know what all of you believe. I don't know what all of you are after. I don't know what kind of hidden sins lie within this room. But I know there are all kinds that are here. And what we have said this morning in this word, that if we persist in unrepentant direction that is rooted in unbelief, that is heading away and against the Lord, it will lead to judgment. That's what the Bible says very clearly. And here's what it says to you also today that you have never done anything that is beyond the saving of the Lord Jesus Christ and that today is the day of salvation. Such were some of you. Such were characteristic of you. But it's not characteristic of you anymore because Jesus has received the unquenchable fire for you and he has quenched it. We refer to the atonement of the Lord Jesus Christ as payment for sins as satisfying the wrath of God. It means that God's anger does not burn against you if you are in Christ Jesus. You are completely 
benevolently loved with the fullness of his charity and his kindness. And that's what he wants to draw you into deeper today. And that's what he's calling you and I to, to walk in the midst of the love and the transformation that comes from it. To hear John when he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and notice, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Praise be to God. What would we do without that? Friends, it is my prayer and my hope as the Lord continues to work in your life and in my own and as His kingdom spreads throughout Middle Tennessee and even the world, that more and more it can be said, and such were some of you. Such were some of you. That's the testimonies we're looking for. That's what we're looking for. We're looking to say that the grace of God broke in here and he transformed what was a pathway to judgment into a pathway to light and life. Will you join me in praying for that? Join me in pursuing that. We live in a day where such urgency for the recognition of these truths must permeate the hearts of believers. And that the courage and the confidence of God's word to say things that we've said today which are hard words to acknowledge that these hard words are meant to soften hearts and make them ripe for the plucking for the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends, the Lord Jesus is moving towards us today in his word. And he's drawing us into following him by faith. Will you join him in his call? Will you answer it? Will you become a witness bearer of Christ in our time, regardless of what happens, trusting Him for the outcome. Let's do this together under the power of the Holy Spirit with the Word of God, knowing that the end will take care of all of what God has promised. He will bring it to rights. We can trust Him for every step of the way. Let's pray to that end. Father in heaven, please, please forge this truth within us. Humble us, Lord. Humble us to receive it. And let us walk in its light and in its glory. Lord, if anything in this message was said, oh, that was unclear or unhelpful or just wrong, oh, please banish it from the record. Please just banish it even from our own minds and our hearts. But that which is in accord with you, let it be unforgettable in our lives and conform us to the nature of this truth through your spirit. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.